At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the Social Psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. I'm pleased to have with me today, Mr. Kelly Snyder. Mr. Snyder is the current CEO and founder of Find Me. He started his career in law enforcement as a law enforcement agent for the Drug Enforcement Agency. And Mr. Snyder served as a law enforcement agent for over 25 years. In 2002, he created Find Me, a 501c3 nonprofit organization to seek justice for the missing and assist law enforcement and their families in locating missing loved ones. Find Me has adopted the use of psychics, retired law enforcement, and forensic experts, and they've partnered with search and rescue management professionals, canine support in their search efforts. They have developed a cutting-edge artificial intelligence program known as MIST in collaboration with Arizona State University using the power of predictive analytics to improve search methods. Out of 300 cases, they've resolved 90 cases and have an overall 35% success rate. I'm pleased to welcome Mr. Schneider onto the phone. Mr. Schneider, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, thank you. Thank you for joining us this uh, evening for our episode. I just gave a brief intro regarding your role with Find Me. And I wanted just to have you touch base about your prior experience as a retired law enforcement agent for the Drug Enforcement Agency. Yeah, while I was uh, doing my master's degree, I was taking tests for the FBI and the Treasury Department and working, uh, assisting the Honolulu Police Department when uh, I was uh, finishing my degree and uh, got hired by the Secret Service, interviewed with the, but didn't take the job. And then just before I went to the academy, there was a hiring freeze. So I ended up actually going with the United States Customs Agency Service as a special agent. They assigned me to the narcotics unit, which I ended up loving, you know, working in narcotics. And then eventually, a couple of years later, transferred to the Drug Enforcement Administration and finished out my career doing that. That's excellent. What motivated you to establish Find Me as a nonprofit organization? Well, shortly after I retired, I uh, wanted to do something, you know, trying to help children and uh, working with young adults in some capacity. I joined the Big Brothers and Big Sisters organization in Arizona, had a little brother, and almost simultaneously, a friend of mine who was a retired DEA agent asked me if I would consider joining the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which really interested me. So eventually I did join it and uh, met a couple of women that had lost their children. So once I went to their academy and, and met these people that had lost children, it just really resonated with me to make me anxious to really get started trying to find missing children. And and that's essentially how it started. But in a three-year span of time working for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they only sent me on three investigations, which I'm not the kind of person that wants to sit around and wait for the phone to ring. So I started initiating cases here in Arizona by literally visiting over 500 police departments in the state and started working cases with them. So ultimately, I worked about 20 
missing children cases uh, in this three-year period, but then just decided, you know, this is crazy to just sit around and wait for something. So I created the Find Me group and started using some of the retired law enforcement people I I was working with in the National Center. And they came over to my group and started growing from that time on uh, from around 2002. What do you feel uh, makes your organization find me different from other groups that look for missing children and adults? Well, I, w- I created the organization using the obvious with investigators that had experience in, in missing person cases, but I wanted a forensic division. I wanted to literally create it like a police department and have all of the things that a police department has so that I could offer these services for free to smaller police departments and sheriff's departments that didn't have the money to get airplanes and search dogs and things of that nature and and have a group of forensic experts on hand. And the only thing I did in addition to this is I always wondered to some degree uh, if the psychic phenomena was real or it was just, you know, a bunch of garbage. So I reached out to a bunch of psychics to try to find if there was something that they could tell me or show me if the psychic phenomena was real. And after meeting a couple of them and uh, working with them for a period of time, I just wanted to keep an open mind because if this actually did work, then of course I wanted to use it. And then once we did get a successful first find with someone that was missing and then Again, well, once once that happens, then you're hooked. And that was almost 17 years ago that I first used them, and I'm continuing to use them. And and we've had some fairly decent success with them by uh, using their skills and their abilities to find people. What I think is really remarkable about your organization is utilizing the information from your prior experience as a law enforcement officer and in being open-minded to rely on psychic information as an extra means to gather your data to help find missing people. I think that's very impressive. When you first started using psychics, was there anything in specific detail that you were relying on to select your particular volunteers who are psychics? Well, initially, no. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about the psychic world anyway, so I just had to take them initially for their word as to what their skill levels were. And then ultimately, while I'm, you know, meeting all of these different psychics and finding out about their different skill levels, I ran across someone that was a uh, forensic astrologer. And uh, then you met the mediums and the clairvoyance and the clairsations and remote viewers and all of these different skill levels. So then it just opened the door even wider and wider. And then you're starting to get all of these different people that have all of these different abilities. And then I just wanted to exploit all of them until eventually I had literally every type of psychic that is, you know, out there, including uh, people that actually do dreaming and use their abilities through their dream process. So literally have about every type of psychic you can think of. How many active psychic uh, volunteers do you currently have with Find Me? Currently, I have 110, and uh, that's just psychics only. And then, you know, we have the forensic experts and, you know, pilots with our two aircraft that we have. And, and then, of course, we have some incredible search and rescue professionals within the group uh, organization we partnered with literally 21 years ago when I was with the National Center, or 20 years ago, I should say. And uh, that's a local organization called Arizona Search, Track, and Rescue. And their methodologies and the way they train their dogs is, you know, better than almost any organization in the in the world. The only one that even comes close to our type of training is the U.S. Air Force. And uh, matter of fact, to certify our dogs, it takes over 2,000 hours just to be certified. And in terms of your forensic experts, I think you also use handwriting experts. Is that right? Yeah, we have two handwriting experts. We have a current police officer that works for a police department in Colorado that is a linguistics expert. And then when 
he speaks to a police department. He takes a collateral case with his department and then works the case. And we actually never see the statements that are sent to him because most police departments want uh, witness or suspect statements uh, in a confidentiality kind of a, you know, they don't want it, you know, out there in the public eye. So uh, they work side by side and then he gives them the analysis of whether or not the suspect or the witness is uh, is actually lying or uh, is withholding information by his analysis. You use uh, reverse speech experts as well? We had two of them in the group a couple years ago, but they left the group. Uh, the only thing we have additional is we had a, a body language expert that uh, is able to watch someone on a video and analyze whether the person is full or, or lying or withholding information. And uh, we also have two medical examiners, one of which is a investigative medical examiner that actually is an expert in drowning deaths. And uh, so, you know, we've actually been able to get quite a few different modalities uh, thrown into the mix just just because people found out about our group and wanted to volunteer. In terms of your, I know you indicated when you used to work with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, it seemed like you weren't satisfying your expectations of wanting to be able to work on multiple cases. In terms of what you're doing now with Find Me, what's the number of average cases that you usually look at each month? We're averaging around three cases a month. And I, what I do is I give the information of the person we're looking for to the members and I give them seven days to respond. And then it usually takes me a day or two to write the report. And we only provide our information to law enforcement, even though 80% of the inquiries and requests we get for help uh, are from families and friends of someone that's missing or, or a homicide victim. But the police department that is uh, use, is doing the investigation actually becomes our client since we can't really provide suspect information or sensitive information to a family member. So if a police department doesn't want to work with us, which is very seldom does that happen, uh, then we will not accept the case because the information can only go to the police department. And that's because it's an active investigation. Is that right? Well, it, it's not so much that it's active. It's, if it's a missing person and the police department's not looking for a missing person, if it's an adult, uh, but we find the person or the person is located, it could be a homicide or something that uh, appears to be a homicide. So that's why the information has to go to a police department just on the chance that someone accidentally would destroy the crime scene if we were to give it to a family group or members, uh, you know, family, friends, etc., that would go out and look for someone and, and then accidentally destroy the crime scene. Tell me what a typical case is like. Uh, someone calls you up and contacts you. How does that usually start? The way they contact us is through our website, and they fill out a request form. Usually it is a family member or a friend, but we do get requests from prosecution offices and police departments around the country. Since we've been in business now for almost 17 years, the word has gotten out about our group. And we don't get as many as I would like from police departments, but I'm hoping that this will change in the future. But uh, essentially we get the case. I talk to the individual that is requesting the support from our group and get as much detail as I can. But all I give to the psychics in the group is the name of the individual that's missing or was murdered, and then a photograph, and the last person was seen alive, and uh, we refer to that as the PLS, the place last seen. And that's all I give them, and then I ask the members to tell me what happened and where is the person at this moment, dead or alive. And... Uh, they have to report back to me with GPS coordinates rather than just a generic area because the police don't like generic information. They like something that's factual that they can actually follow up on. So that's why the GPS coordinates are so critical. How do you get the psychics to give you GPS coordinates? 
Well, they do their meditation the, the normal way, and then they're either seeing or hearing something that will give them a location. Then I ask them to either use a pendulum over a map, which a lot of them do that, but the majority actually go on Google Earth or some, you know, satellite mapping system and actually try to pinpoint the area that they're actually seeing in their vision. And usually there's a landmark or something that will put them into the correct area, but where it gets a little bit more difficult is when you have a wooded area or a huge jungle area, then, you know, you don't really have a lot of things that you can zero in as far as a landmark. But that's when a lot of them will start using a pendulum and uh, the pendulum will actually tell them where they think that the person is dead or alive. So you'll get that information from your psychic. Now, do you take that information and follow up with them or what's the next step you usually do with the uh, data that you get from your psychic volunteers? Everything that they send me, I extract all of their information off of their report and put it in a police style report along with the GPS coordinates. But I also go on Google Earth and put a place mark for every GPS coordinate. That way I have a, a literally a satellite map that if the police wanted, I can send it to them. But they literally would, you know, would be able to have the image or just the GPS coordinates. And, you know, in the probably nine years, close to 10 years, we've been doing the GPS no police department has ever asked us for the image. They, you know, they all know how to use GPS portable systems. So it's relatively easy for them just by, you know, receiving our coordinates. Have you had uh, different law enforcement agencies come back as a repeat client after you've provided your services to them? Yeah, it's uh, quite a few police departments that we've worked with in the past have come back to us just because, you know, we're extremely professional. We don't get in their way. We don't do something that's going to interrupt their investigation. So it's literally a one-way street. We give them everything and we ask them literally for nothing. Now, every once in a while, they'll, they'll call and ask a couple of questions with regards to some of the information we send to them, but that's very infrequent. And, uh, and then usually we we never hear from them again. We just move on to the next case. And then we monitor through the media. I have a researcher that's incredible. And she monitors all of our, our cases that are still considered pending or open. And, uh, but a lot of times, probably 85% of the families we work with, if something happens and the person is found, then they will get in touch with us and let us know. With reference to your written reports, does that usually take you about a week or so to compile the data before you relay it to the law enforcement? No, I try to get it all done within two days after the, the final reporting date. Now, some of the members will be a day or two late. And when I do receive that, after I've written my report and, you know, send it to the police authority, then I will do a supplemental report and send in the late reports uh, just as an added supplement to the police department, just to make sure that nothing is, is missed uh, in what the members are sending to me. Can you tell us a little about your protocols? In what reference? Well, I believe from looking at your information that you use crowdsourcing capabilities. What, what we do is the information that is provided by the, the members uh, is put into an artificial intelligence program and the artificial intelligence program is that the algorithms already allows it to literally map the most logical area that, you know, we're more than likely going to find the remains of someone that is deceased or if it's someone that is alive and actively on the move, then of course uh, the system is a little bit challenged, but essentially it's the same mechanism. It's, it's analyzing the data that you're providing it and then giving you the most logical place where the person that you're looking for could be found. Your artificial intelligence program, is it called MIST? Yeah, MIST. It uh, stands for Missing Person uh, Intelligence Synthesis Toolkit. And uh, it's, you know, it was uh, something that I, I took the idea to the Arizona State University, the School of uh, 
of uh, engineering. They're computer sciences people and found a professor there that was interested in doing this and then worked with them for a year developing it and then uh, just got it up and running uh, literally just last year. What have you found has been the most significant impact of using MIST in your searches? It is narrowing the searches down to a half mile. And in the world of search and rescue, uh, just to be narrowed down to a half mile is extremely significant because if you don't know if the individual north, south, east, or west, then, you know, you just, you're expanding the area that your search grid is anywhere from 150 to 200 miles. So by narrowing it down using these uh, algorithms that we've created, then you're essentially giving the search and rescue people, the dogs and the airplanes and whatever you got out there searching, a little bit better advantage in trying to locate the person. So that, that sounds like that would make a pretty significant impact in terms of your ability to be effective in helping law enforcement locate missing people. And that's an active case, it sounds like. It's one of those things where you've got the investigative, you've got the psychic, and then search and rescue. But then if you can bring in a, sci a scientific component, it just really adds to your, your toolbox of all of these different things that, you know, will bring some kind of closure and positive uh, closure to the families and the police department. It's all of these things. And, uh, you know, anything that we can use that would, you know, advance our efforts and make it even more accurate, I'm up for just about anything because you can't just always rely on on investigative ability because if you have zero leads and you don't know anything as to where the person is, then then where do you start? And that's why you got to throw in all of these different mechanisms so that you can have some kind of a, a positive outcome just because you've got so many tools that you're using. Has finally uh, been assigned any cold cases? Like, for example, a missing person that's been gone, you know, that hasn't been located for over like 10 years? Yeah, we've had a, as long as 40 years. And, uh, you know, as long as the police department that you're working with will accept your information, we don't care how long the case is uh, unsolved. And, and we're working quite a few cold cases right now. So it's something that is constant. And then normally we don't get called right away. We usually get called when the families discover that police departments are not required to look for a missing adult. And once that happens, then they start searching for organizations and groups like mine that, you know, will actively get involved in looking for their loved one. So you've actually, have you been contacted by family members for cold cases, for example? Yeah, just most recently, uh, one that, that came in the door about three weeks ago was a missing woman from 40 years ago. And even though we've only had two of them with that length of time, there's no reason that we wouldn't accept anything that's brand new and, and fresh versus something that's really old because, and, uh, you know, you're leaning and a little bit harder on the psychics to come up with information because for the most part, the police if they were involved in an investigation, you know, all of the leads are, are come and gone by now. And, and uh, so, yes, we will take a case that old. I mean, it's not, it's not something that you can get a police department interested in. So that is one of the negative components to a case that's really old. When you have a case that old and you get information from your psychic volunteers, and then the next step, I guess you take it to the, local police that are investigating it, how has their response been with a case like that? Well, with your data, I should 90, say. Yeah, literally 98% of the time, if the case is still open, they will accept the information. And like I said earlier, uh, we don't know if they're actively investigating it once we've sent the information on to them. What we get from them is their agreement to look over our information if there's something that's viable and they think we just ask them to follow up on those leads and we take them for their word that they're going to do that. But then usually we're sitting here with 20 or 30 cases that haven't been assigned to the group yet. So we just move on to the next case and, and just keep the flow going, you know, rather than 
sit back and concentrate on one case. We just keep moving forward. The only time we get further involved is if we're asked to bring in our forensic experts or uh, our search and rescue, our airplanes, our drones, our dogs, whatever. And then it gets a little bit more involved because then we're putting a lot of time actually in the search and taking it, you know, steps further. I just think that's phenomenal that you can take a case like that and try to re, you know, re-engage it to uh, utilize your methodology to hopefully get it back into the forefront for the law enforcement. What's been the most difficult situation you've encountered while gathering information on one of these cases? Everything is almost identical. There's no, there's no thing. There's nothing that really is uh, most difficult. They're almost always identical. And initially, when we were first starting out. It was trying to convince the police departments to actually look look at our information and do something with it. But in the 17 years that we've been doing this, we've only been turned down by 15 police departments, and eight of those were from a foreign country. So uh, we feel, or at least I feel, very fortunate that we're able to convince the police departments to at least look at our information and if they think it has some kind of merit, then at least uh, look into some of the, the leads that we're providing. And in terms of the different jurisdictions that you've worked in, have you found that local domestic organizations have been friendlier to your organization as compared to overseas, or is it about the same? Overseas, uh, law enforcement authorities are a little bit more difficult, you know, not really knowing or understanding why, other than maybe they're just not up to date with the psychic phenomena. For example, it used to be horrible in Canada to try to get them to do anything, but then, you know, little by little, the the word has gotten out to law enforcement, you know, literally worldwide, that the psychic phenomena does actually exist, and it is accurate to a degree. And uh, so I think, you know, when they when they start looking at it from that perspective, then I think the door is open a little bit wider. And then there's now so many different shows on TV that, you know, have the, the psychics providing information that is accurate. So maybe people are, you know, opening up their minds a little bit more to, to believe in the process. And, uh, you know, like I say, I was convinced the first time we found someone and it was based 100% on psychic information because we had, no idea where the person was in the state of Arizona. And all of the psychics, the majority of them, were sending us to a certain area. And we went up there with our canine support team and, uh, and found the person. So it's, it's one of those things when it happens once, then, of course, you're hooked. Then you want to see <laughs> more, of it, that. more of it. What type of, uh, I guess, skepticism have you dealt with trying to use psychics in your search methods well you know sometimes when you're talking to the police on the phone you can almost see their eyes rolling when you're talking to them and convincing them but i literally go into my cop mode and and uh start talking to them literally like a police officer and and explain to them you know hey you get information off the street from informants that you can't believe 100 percent is accurate so What's the difference in what I'm providing to you? You know, just take a look at it and and see if any of it makes sense to you. And that's literally what I tell them in the conversation that, you know, we've had such incredible success with it. You know, it's not going to take them in a different direction because the if the information doesn't make sense, then they don't have to investigate it. But if it does make sense, then, of course, follow up on the lead just like you would with a anonymous phone call that you receive in the police department or informant information of some kind or, you know, witness information, all of which is questionable, but nonetheless, the police departments want to follow up on almost all the leads just on the chance that there is some merit to the lead. In terms of your operating budget, since you're a nonprofit, how do you raise funds for your organization? Well, we've, uh, We've had some success with that by uh, meeting with, you know, some very generous donors. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the lady that gave us the money for 
the artificial intelligence literally wrote a check for $150,000 so that we could pay for that. And so you get a few people out there that are providing uh, additional monies and uh, we're now doing grant writing, which we hadn't done in the past. And we're, we did a fundraiser in 2014 and Bruce Willis was kind enough to uh, put on a fundraiser for us in New York. And uh, we made fairly decent amount of money in that, but it's year after year, you're trying to find different ways of, you know, trying to fund everything that we do. And, uh, but the only thing we don't do is car washes and bake sales. It's, it just, (laughs) there's not enough profit in it. And, uh, you're putting way too much time and energy into something that you're getting very few dollars in return. But for nine and a half years, everything came out of our pockets. And to some degree, when we run out of money, we still will go out on searches and do what we have to do, even if it's coming out of our pockets. So we're hoping that, you know, the the donations get a little bit bigger and better. And, uh, but, you know, we're working diligently at it, not, you know, just sitting out there and hoping that people do it. We're actually physically, you know, reaching out to people and, uh, organizations and businesses and corporations and and that will continue and get bigger and bigger in terms of your volunteer membership i know we have the psychics and we have retired law law enforcement officers what other type of people are involved with your organization as volunteers well the you know i i'd mentioned earlier the forensic experts which we've covered a little bit but we have two airplanes one is based out of arizona and one's based out of colorado uh, we have two drones that we use, which, you know, we send the drones into a canyon or someplace that physically would be a safety factor for a human to go into a, you know, an area that's possibly dangerous. And uh, so, you know, what's come in handy in a lot of cases is this this one lady that we have that's the investigative medical examiner, and she's an expert in drowning deaths, and we've used her on quite a few cases that we were working on drowning deaths. So you have all of these people that are volunteering their time and we don't use a lot of the forensic experts. We offer that to the police departments, but for the most part, the major police departments, you know, have all of these tools, but we have found in the past small police departments, seven or eight or 10 officers and sheriff's departments with maybe 20 officers for a huge county and they are very receptive to all of the things that we offer. So it's, you know, you offer it and then it's up to them to, to let us know whether or not they, they want to use any of our, our uh, services. In terms of the last 17 years, I know you said you've been work, you, you, your organization's worked on approximately 300 missing cases and that you've solved approximately 90 of those. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a little bit more as far as the number of cases and a little bit more. I think it's 304 cases now, maybe 305. And uh, I think we've solved or resolved in some capacity uh, 93 or 94 cases. I I should have went over the spreadsheet before we talked, but we're, we're in the ballpark. It's, you know, give or take one or two. I'm I'm thinking of the statistics, and I would think any law enforcement agency would be extremely impressed with that, and would be very open to wanting to utilize your your services, and um, would be very interested in wanting to help what you're doing for a cause. Have you had anyone well, like the FBI or? Yeah, we we were contacted by the FBI on the. Natalie Holloway case, and they we used uh, our psychics on that case and provided the information to the FBI. And uh, once again, we never heard back from them, so I'm not really sure what happened. But uh, we provided them suspect information and what we thought had happened, and and where they would find her body. And uh, I think we've only worked with the FBI on two cases, but that's the one that comes to mind initially. And and then just a lot of repeat law enforcement agencies that have used us in the past and we've been successful with them. So we just keep, you know, going back to the the same organization. They'll contact us or, 
or the family from that particular county or city or state agency will get them involved again. And, and uh, so we do have a lot of repeat customers, so to speak. I'm really impressed by that because that's such a great, I mean, your, your results speak for themselves. In terms of media coverage for your efforts, I know um, there's one case, Willie Jigba. Can you tell us a little about that case? Yeah, it was an unfortunate situation. The kid was uh, out with a bunch of his friends one night, and there was a lot of drinking going on, and he was so intoxicated that no one really wanted to take him home because I think he was, uh, you know, getting sick quite a bit. So um, he started walking home and then was never found again until uh, we were asked to look for him. So... I gave the information to the, the members in the group, the psychic members, and they told us that we would find him in a place called Tempe Town Lake, which was about maybe a half a mile from where the party was and in the same direction that he had to walk to get back to his apartment. And they told us where the body was in the water. So we took our boat and our dogs and started going up and down you know, this lake trying to find the scent and four of our dogs alerted on a particular area. So we dropped a buoy in that area and then called the dive team from the uh, Tempe fire department. And they came in and dive dove into that area. And on day number two, uh, the body was found about 30 feet from our buoy. And uh, when you complete a search like that, how did the media get involved? I know that there was an ABC news report. I believe you got interviewed on it. How did you hear from them? Well, you know, once we're out with the dogs and uh, they see our search and rescue gear that we have, uh, you know, we don't necessarily know how it happens, but all of a sudden you start seeing media trucks show up and, and it's just not a question you know, that we asked them, you know, how did you find out about what we were doing? We just accept it for what it is. And then if they want to interview us, we, we interview with them. I mean, we're not looking to upstage the police department. I mean, it's basically up to them to release information. But in this particular case, they got to our location the day before we actually found him. So, um, you know, we just told them, you know, we had information that, said that he was uh, in the lake somewhere and we were going to follow up on it. And then day number two came. And then that's when, then that's when, you know, every media agency within a hundred miles, you know, showed up. But then at that point we weren't there anymore because we came in to see that the body was recovered and then we left. And then I think the police department and the fire department then gave interviews, but uh, it's just something that happens. I mean, they see our shirts, our dogs, so they know something's going on. And someone makes a phone call to a friend at one of the news stations. And, and most of the time, that's what happens. But we never contact them because we don't want to upset the apple cart with the police. We want, we want to just do what we have to do. And then if we find something, then we notify the police and stay there as long as they want us to stay. And then we leave. With reference to... Uh, there's a Dil- I think a Dylan Nicholas Redwine. That's another case I believe you got involved with. A 13 year old child. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, actually, when he went missing, he was uh, 12 years old. Um, it was a father that had temporary, not temporary custody, but uh, visitation rights to the child. And the mother and the child lived in a different city within the state of Colorado, but the father lived in a community called Bayfield, Colorado, and then. Uh, the child was ordered by the court to go visit the father and uh, he went there to visit him. And then following day, the father woke up and said the child was missing. So we got contacted by the family and uh, gave the information to the uh, sheriff's department there. And unfortunately the timing of it, by the time we gave them the information, uh, this particular area near Durango, Colorado had, something like three feet worth of snow by the time we gave them the information. So they conducted quite a few searches until they just couldn't get into certain areas. And then once the snow melted, 
the sheriff's department contacted us and asked us to come in with our dogs and we came in and uh found uh, his remains the the next day what about um there's another case i was looking at as well sean fowler is that a kansas case you got involved in yeah that was uh a place in Perry, Kansas, where the chief of police found out about our group and called us and asked us uh, if we could uh, use the psychics. And he actually went on our website and knew that's one of uh, the tools that we had and asked if we could find find uh, this kid named Sean Fowler. And uh, so, you know, we sent the information back to them. And once again, it was winter time, so they had to wait for the ice and and some of the dangerous portions of the river to uh to melt but one of the significant things that the psychics were saying is that sean was underneath the water deceased but he was caught on uh a tree that had fallen into the river and he was caught with with and underneath under the water on the branches so the police went out and uh went to where this fallen tree was that we told them where it was in the river and started doing these circles to uh, stir up the water with their boat. And ultimately the body popped up and it was right there where the, the tree was. So we had like three of the members that had indicated that same area, but specifically one of the members stated it was a downed tree that had fallen in the river from a storm and one of the sheriff's deputies was uh, on the search with the sheriff, with the chief of police, and and he knew where that tree was. So they went to the tree and started doing these circles with their motorized boat and stirring up the water to create, you know, a uh, one of those circles. I don't know what the heck you call it, but uh, anyway, the uh, the body popped up, and uh, you know, so they were pretty pleased with that. Have you had cases where you actually were assigned someone missing who you were able to recover someone who's alive, where they might have been lost or held against their will? Well, nothing that I can recall where someone was held against their will, but, uh, you know, we may have had something like that. But we've, we've had like four cases where we found people alive, one of which uh, was a, one of our first cases here in Arizona where a twin brother who had a meta condition, I think it was bipolar condition, had walked away from a home in Scottsdale, Arizona, and uh, nobody knew where he went. So we gave it to the members of the group. And one particular member uh, came up with the Mission District in San Francisco. And more specifically, she stated she was seeing or meditated and saw a vision of him standing in a soup line as some kind of a homeless shelter for feeding homeless people. And uh, so we gave that information to the twin brother. He flew to San Francisco with a bunch of pictures of his brother and started approaching people on the street in the Mission District. And on day number two, he showed it to a homeless man, and the homeless man said, oh, yeah, I've seen that guy. And matter of fact, I just left this place down the street He's standing in line waiting for something to eat at this homeless shelter. And the brother went down there, and there he was standing in line. That's amazing. That's, that's what yeah, I thought. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, at least we got the mission district. But, you know, as far as narrowing it down to the street and an address, we didn't do it that time. But we had enough information that at least got the twin brother in the right area. And then, exactly. you know, after spending a day and a half, he finally found him. And uh, it was one of our first success stories. I think it was uh, like year number one or year number two that, you know, we were trying to get the group going and trying to work out all the kinks in the first year. But I believe it was the second year is when we found uh, that guy alive. I was looking at your site and I noticed you have uh, resource link partners. I know you mentioned uh, Arizona Search, Track, and Rescue Incorporated. Could you tell us a little about correct your involvement with them? The Arizona Search and Rescue, you said? Yes. When I was with the National Center for Missing Children, I, I met a lady that's the founder of uh, that organization. Her name is Christy Smith. 
And uh, so I asked her, I said, you know, I'm going to be looking for missing children and asked her a lot about her animals and how she did her training. And she was extremely professional and had the same mentality as I did as far as doing all of these services for free. So we, we literally hit it off right, right from jump street to, you know, want to work together. So that was, I think, 21 years ago that I met her when I was with the national center. And then it was a natural, you know, progression from when I left the center and created my own group that we would just continue to work together. And so we've literally been together ever since. And we've had such incredible success that, you know, there's no reason to change. I mean, I really would like to see more people volunteer for her organization uh, we used to have, I think, 25 or 30 certified dogs, and now I think we're down to like six or seven just because last year, I believe, we retired three or four dogs. So, you know, we're, we just need additional people to join that want to train their dog in search and rescue. It's, you know, it's uh, it's very rewarding. I mean, you get to be with your, you know, your dog, and you get to potentially find someone and find them alive. So... Um, I just wish we'd get more volunteers for her organization. I'm, I'm sitting pretty with volunteers for my organization, but uh, hers is dwindling a little bit, and uh, we'd just like to get it pumped up a little bit more with new volunteers. And would that be just strictly for Arizona, or would that be anywhere else? Well, well as far as doing the training and everything, you, you have to do it uh, here in Arizona. But we are opening an office in Oklahoma, so that will expand it to a different area. And we're hoping to get more people in Oklahoma and then just keep expanding it in that direction. So, But for training and and doing it, we're going to have two places now, Oklahoma and Arizona. So predominantly, it's Arizona because most of the training is done here. Okay. Tell me about Triforce. I was looking at that as well. Um, it's one of your partners. What exactly do you do with them? Well, they're a group of, for lack of a better term, a bunch of brainiacs that are, you know, like people with IQs above 170 that are a group of people that got together that some of which are psychic, some of which are just brainiacs that have all these ideas on on certain ways that they believe that the case is... Uh, is heading in a certain direction, whether that be a homicide, uh, human trafficking related, or just the missing person. But essentially, we've evolved to a, de- to a degree into human trafficking about a year and a half, two years ago, just because the human trafficking victim is a missing person. So uh, they've been very interested in working that aspect of it. But essentially, they're available to work almost anything, but we use them for um, the science related, you know, things that you know, we ask them to do research on and, and actually the Triforce organization itself, I believe is run by one of my members, who's my director of operations. And uh, he's another one of these brainiacs. I think his IQ is something about 182 or something. And, uh, so it's just another toolbox kind of thing that I mentioned earlier, just one more thing that you know, we leave the door open for anything and everything just because we don't have all of the facts and we don't have all of the answers. So why not open the door for just anyone that wants to help and volunteer to find someone or, or help in any capacity for that matter? Definitely. I'm looking at, uh, when I was looking at your site, I also went in your media section and there was a excerpt from Pounding the Ground by Tim Goodwin. Uh, can you tell us a little about that video? Yeah, it was uh, a lady that approached me about four and a half, I think five years ago, maybe, uh, to do a documentary. And uh, so they actually, Tim Goodwin and the lady that that approached me initially was Denise Goodwin-Pace. And uh, Tim is her brother, and he's a videographer. So they actually went to colorado springs with us on a missing uh woman case and uh so we went there with our dogs and they filmed uh our you know our search and uh i think we were there a total of five days so uh, we put a lot of effort into it matter of fact 
one of the worst fires ever recorded in Colorado Springs happened literally a day before we left. And, uh, and then as the days, you know, rolled on, it got considerably worse. And I think they lost something like 135 or 137 homes that, uh, that year. Have you, uh, launched any type of YouTube channel or anything yet for find me? Not yet. We've talked about it and, uh, it's not something that is, is something that we're going to do initially right now, but it's, it's on the table and we've talked about it and, uh, any, like I said, anything and everything to get the word out. We, yeah. we want to help anyone that is in need. So obviously that, that's a good, you know, good thing to use. So I think it's, it's something that we will eventually do in, in the near future. This is all while you're retired at this point. Is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, like I say, you know, I didn't want to go the golf route and, uh, and sit around and, and not really have any, anything planned. And I think my motivation, once I got the bug to look for missing people and especially at that point, missing children, then, uh, I mean, it just, it ballooned unbelievably. So I wanted to do it part time, but now it's literally a full-time job. I'm working at it sometimes, uh, 10, 12 hours a day. And then if we're out on searches, then it's 24 hours a day. You're literally gone and you're out in the wilderness. We've been to Japan, uh, four times and, uh, they've got a little bit of a missing person problem over there, just like almost anywhere in the world. And so we're, you know, we're going to go anywhere and everywhere that we're needed, wanted, and our funds are, are good enough that we can afford it. In terms of all these cases that you worked on, I know you've definitely done a lot to be able to bring closure to families that have been impacted by having their relatives or loved ones go missing. What has been the most rewarding experience for you to date involving Find Me and your searches? Well, I've got quite a few. There's not one. Um, Anytime we have a success, to me, you know, that is my reward. You know, I don't need a pat on the back. All I need is the family to call me and and thank me and you can hear it in their voice you know that you know we don't want to be the only thing out there the only organization helping these people but in some cases we are the last resort so you know we do everything we can to locate their loved one and you know I've got you know probably 20 or 30 of these cases where I got a little bit more personally involved because some of them were local and the Dylan Redwine case, for example, I mean, we went to Colorado on three separate searches, even though we found him the first time we searched, they, the police wanted us to the La Plata County Sheriff's department wanted us to find, you know, additional remains of this child because uh, at this point they were convinced it was a homicide and, and ultimately, they they did arrest the father just, uh, I guess, about two months ago. So he was a person of interest from day one, and uh, they just arrested him, I think, two months ago. So that one got real personal, and a couple here locally in the, the Willie Jigba case, Jack Kululeas, same thing. He was a young ASU student that drowned in the same lake just about, a half mile away from where we found Willie and Marcy Randolph was another lady we looked for and ultimately was found two and a half, two and a half years later after we started searching for. And so there's not really, I guess, one that stands out. It's just some of them we've been involved with that were more personal because we were out there meeting the family feet on the street. And, uh, and it got a little more personal just because of that. But, all of them mean something to us just because we want to try and help the families and the police. But some of them, like I say, just get a little bit more personal just because of the attachment that we have to the families. Absolutely. We have about three minutes left to our episode. This episode has gone very fast based on our subject matter. I wanted to ask you before we end our episode, how could any of our listeners become involved with the organization? Well, whether they want to be with the search and rescue or with my organization the find me group, uh, it would be best to just go onto our website, 
uh, findmegroup.org and uh, make an inquiry as to what they can bring to the table, whether it's their investigative ability, their forensic ability, their a pilot, they're, you know, a scuba diver, uh, they're a psychic, uh, a police officer that has all of this knowledge of missing person cases. It's anything and everything that you think would help in finding missing persons, solving homicides, and, and human trafficking. So that leaves the door wide open. And then, you know, like I said earlier in the conversation, we, you know, desperately need additional people for our search and rescue organizations. So we still have quite a few dedicated members, but we'd like to get, you know, 20 or 30 more. So just things of that nature. So go on to my website and uh, I'll make sure they get into the right place if they, uh, if they want to volunteer and help. And just once again, your website is www.findmegroup.org. Is that correct? That is correct. I deeply appreciate you coming on the show this evening and sharing your time with us. I think that this is an extremely fascinating topic to cover on my show. I, I believe that you are doing one of those amazing things that very few people get to do with their lives and you're impacting a lot of people in a positive way and truly doing phenomenal work and anything I can do to promote you, I would love to do in the future. I just want to thank you deeply. Is there anything else before we end our episode that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I do appreciate you having me on your show. And, and the one thing I would like the listeners to understand is that this artificial intelligence uh, is not something to be afraid of. This is something that can help, you know, mankind and medical and everything. And I really do believe that artificial intelligence will ultimately revolutionize law enforcement. So I can't say enough that, you know, law enforcement needs to look into this and will certainly help any law enforcement entity out there that wants to use our system, but it's all driven on data. So that's the one thing that they have to remember is data drives artificial intelligence. If you don't have data, then you don't have AI. It sounds like the things that you're utilizing to create your methodology for search and, you know, finding missing people is, is really cutting edge. And uh, anything that can be done to uh, help your organization. I encourage our listeners to contact you and go on your website and find out as much as possible about Find Me as, as you can. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on our show. And if there's anything I could ever do in the future, please uh, let us know. If you ever want to come back on another episode, I'd be happy to feature you as well. If there's any current cases that you might want to um, share with us in terms of your continued success. I'd, I'd actually love to do that, Jason, so I appreciate the offer. Thank you so much, and I, I will absolutely love to keep in touch with you and, and do whatever I can to, to support your organization because I believe it's such a great, no, noble cause. Thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate it. Okay. Have a great, have a great night, sir. Thank you. For any one of our listeners who just heard this episode, I just really wish that you can uh, go on www.findmegroup.org. I think it's, it's one of the best organizations with a very novel purpose. And um, if there's somebody out there listening that wants to get involved in this group, I highly recommend you contact Kelly Schneider directly. And uh, in terms of our show, thank you for listening to our show, for subscribing to it. You can always go to my website, www.thesocialpsychic.com for any information about what I'm up to. Thank you for listening to our show, and, and I look forward to uh, continued episodes with you as we move forward in this process. Have a great night. Thank you. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. 
ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Hour. Electric acid. 